Hi, this is Neil Satin, the host of Relationship Alive. I just wanted to take a quick moment to say that if you find this podcast helpful, please consider making a donation to help support the podcast. You can do that by visiting neilsatin.com slash support or texting the word support to the number 33444 and following the instructions. And you can choose any level that feels right to you. Thank you so much in advance for your help in ensuring that this podcast can continue. I also wanted to mention that if you haven't picked it up yet already, you can grab my free uh, top three relationship communication secrets. These are communication tips that you can incorporate easily into how you communicate with your partner, and they're based specifically on things that will help you grow closer and more connected to your partner, even if you're communicating about something challenging. You can get that by visiting neilsatin.com slash relate or texting the word relate to the number 33444 and following the instructions. All right, on with the show. Hello and welcome to another episode of Relationship Alive. This is your host, Neil Satin. It's one of the most ironic things I think about relationship. We meet someone and fall madly in love. And then over time, things that we loved about them maybe start to bother us or or worse. Or it's possible that we start to notice those things about ourselves that bother us, or particularly that bother our partner. And then we get in this quest to change. And I know that's why you might be listening to this podcast. It's this question of how do we evolve our relationship? How do I change? How do I change my partner, if that's even possible? And how do we grow together so that we stand the best chance at thriving and staying in love and staying passionate and solving our problems together and and growing to something new that we wouldn't have even been able to experience without each other. That's my goal for you, and that is what we are going to dive into in this episode. Today's guest is Dr. Jeffrey Zeig. He is the founder and director of the Milton Erickson Foundation and has edited, co-authored, or or authored himself more than 20 books on psychotherapy. He's the architect of the evolution of psychotherapy conferences, the brief therapy conferences, the couples conferences, and the international congresses on Ericksonian approaches to hypnosis and psychotherapy. All of that is to say that Jeff Zeig has an expertise in a vast array of how we tackle this question of change, this adventure of how we evolve and grow. And he is tapped into exactly where we're at in terms of what we know right now about what's possible. Because particularly, not only through his own work as a therapist, but through his conferences, he is bringing the best minds and hearts in the world together to talk about this very question. So we're going to hopefully glean some of Jeff Zeig's wisdom today. And as always, we will have a detailed show guide for you. You can get it by visiting neilsatin.com slash Zeig, and that's spelled Z-E-I-G. Or you can text the word passion 
to the number 33444 and follow the instructions, and I will send you a link to download the show guide for this episode as well as all of the other Relationship Alive episodes. Without further ado, Jeffrey Zeig, thank you so much for joining us today on Relationship Alive. Neil, thank you so much for having me. I feel honored to be among such distinguished guests that you've had on your show. Well, it makes perfect sense for you to be here among them, and I'm really excited for your contribution. So, so should we start with the question that you were posing? Let's start right there, yeah. Uh, well, we, we, when we look, for example, at the work of Helen Fisher, one of our most esteemed scientists and anthropologists who studies love, we know that there, as a, as a love as a biological phenomena has different components and that those components have a different neurobiology, a different neurochemistry. So there would be a stage of um, attraction, a stage of attachment, and a stage of bonding. And attraction would be like what gets us looking, and we see somebody with symmetrical features and our eyes turn. And then there's a stage of attachment where you, maybe that lasts five years, perhaps, and you can't stop thinking about the other person. It's a stage of luminance. You, 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 you know, you're sorting for similarities. Parcheesi, you like Parcheesi? I love Parcheesi. Isn't that amazing? And uh, then eventually that stage, uh, which is characterized by high sexual activity, and you can't get enough of the other person, and then that stage moves into bonding. This is my mate. And the neurochemicals that are secreted drive down desire, now, when you meet somebody in that stage of luminance, Shakespeare was right, love is blind, and you, you can't see the other person for who that other person is. I remember when I was in graduate school, that's 40 years ago, and I had a teacher who I really admired. He was incredibly wealthy from a very prestigious family. And he was teaching at a master's program at San Francisco State University. He was one of the most psychologically well-developed human beings I'd ever met. And in passing in class one day, he said that seven years after being married to his wife, he woke up and suddenly, to his own dismay, he saw his wife for who she was different from his projection of who he wanted to be and different from his projection of who he thought she was. And he saw her for who she was and he stayed married. And I thought, well, my gosh, if it takes somebody that psychologically well-developed to be able to perceive in a more um, correct way, in a more realistic way, what, what, the, what hope does that hold for the rest of us? So when people get married, especially at an early age, they tend to marry differences, like somebody who is artistic could marry somebody who was more academic, perhaps engineering, and you would have personality characteristics, like one person, the artist, would be an enhancer, and she would be going, if it was the woman, oh my God, it's incredible, he's so stable, it's amazing, I can't believe that anybody in the world is that stable. And that characteristic becomes extremely attractive uh, in the early stage of the relationship. And he, who happens to be more of a reducing, uh, dissecting personality, is saying, well, it's rather interesting and somewhat charming and piques some of my uh, attention because she seems rather uh, enthusiastic. 
And then five years, seven years later, they developed deadly allergies. And, <laughs> and she's saying, oh, my God, I can't believe he's so boring. And he's saying, well, I think that maybe she's somewhat overly enthusiastic. Now, at that moment, the marriage turns into a bilateral pseudotherapy project. And uh, she's uh, just the right person for him if he can tone her down, and he's just the right person for her uh, if uh, she can get him to uh, be more emotion-oriented. And this is oftentimes a crisis time in, in the relationship where people um, can uh, get into trouble with affairs, a divorce, uh, alcoholism, all kinds of acting out problems. And um, it's a moment where when, in my clinical experience, I'm not talking about research, when if the couple is capable about working out those differences, then it's much easier to move into that stage of bonding. This is my mate. This is the person who I want to be with for, for the rest of my life. Uh, but oftentimes, relationships are like religious enclaves, ecumenical enclaves, where one person is trying to convert the other person into their uh, religion. And that religion could be being more emotional or being more artistic or being more uh, organized, whatever it is. So it's very easy to look over at the other side of the fence and weed somebody else's garden. But when, to tell you the truth, the artificial turf looks the same on either side of the fence, and there's always going to be weeds in the garden. Yeah, so, there are a couple yeah. things that are that are jumping out at me here. One sure. being that what you described is that in the initial stages, we each person say has a strength. So in the example that you used, there's the one person who's the enhancer. Um, and then there's the other person who is the um, the the stabilizer, let's say, mm -hmm. yes. and they and they bring those strengths to each other, yes. and then they develop that allergy. And I think it, that allergies actually work that way, where repeated exposures to an allergen can actually ultimately evoke the uh, the allergic response. What I'm wondering, on the one hand, is what is it that keeps those abilities, the strengths that each person has from continuing to be strengths that the enhancer might say, oh my God, you know, this person is so boring that I'm with because they're so stable. Like what, what is it that makes that shift to boring from their natural strong place as enhancers? And, and I feel like that brings us to uh, the question of how can like, can someone find their way back to their strength and to appreciating their partner's strength in a way that, that reconnects them to, to the bonding energy that they would experience with each other? Yeah, I'm sure people reconnect on a regular basis without the need of a trained listener. So, but sometimes it's better to have a therapist who can be able, who as an outside person, can see the dynamics of the system and help people to equilibrate, help people to accept, you know, this is what exists and this is what I married and uh, uh, to make the marriage into this bilateral pseudotherapy project, 
where each person is trying to change the other, well, that doesn't work. So one of the things, if I'm seeing a new couple, I might ask them the John F. Kennedy question as applied to marriage, which is ask not what this marriage is, not what your partner can do for you, ask what you can do for your marriage. How can you step up? What are the areas in which you can improve rather than uh, targeting the other person and saying this relationship will be fine if he or she just does X? Well, you know, that shooting fish in a barrel, it's always <laughs> easier to find the weeds in somebody else's garden. And if we could appreciate the flowers in the garden and extol the flowers, then we have a much better chance of uh, enjoying the enterprise. There's no greater adventure on the planet than uh, having a growing, loving, stable relationship. And you learn the most about yourself. I learned about most about myself, not from psychology books, but from the primary relationship that I have. So that makes me wonder... Um what what do you do or what are some avenues that you see for helping people wake up when they're at a stage where they look at the garden and all they see are the weeds? Well, so let's, let's back up for just a second. Okay, so I'm a psychologist. I'm an expert. A patient says to me, you know, Dr. Zyke, what is love? Well, it, most of us, when we think about a, a, conception, a concept like love, we think about it in terms of its internal characteristics, like love is passion, it's security, it's uh, um, appreciating the other person, it's uh, trying to make the other person feel comfortable. It, we mostly we're looking for internal qualities. So love is an inter interaction pattern. Love is not something that happens solely within a person. It's something that happens among but we don't have words that describe interaction patterns. We only have words that describe internal components. So what does it look like between two loving people? And actually, I had to make up a word to describe an interaction pattern. So I have an acronym, TOPIA, T-O-P-I-A-H. And that made-up word is, is an acronym for an interaction pattern. It stands for take obvious, and that's the operative word, take obvious pleasure in another's happiness. And that's what it looks like between two loving people. So if, if in a prototypical traditional relationship, the man comes home and he loves his wife's cooking. Well, that's more internal. But the state of Topaya would be that the man comes home and loves how happy his wife is to cook because that's her hobby or the, the man who loves fishing, and the wife is happy to see her husband's happiness, how much fishing means to him. So if people can start to reorient and take more pleasure in their partner's happiness, obvious pleasure, show your partner that you're obviously happy with the things that your partner finds meaningful, then um, rather than creating this downward spiral, we start to create a spiral that moves upward. And not only could that happen in terms of this topaya pattern, but it could also happen in terms of communication. 
So, um, let's, so can we play a game, Neil, you and I? Absolutely. Okay. So you say, so what we're going to do is we're going to play out a yes, but pattern. And so you start by saying, uh, we're here talking. You said that to me. Okay, so Jeff, we're here talking right now. Yeah, but what's the meaning of that? Now you come back with another yes, but. Um, well, but, but we're, we're like we'll get anybody. Right? Like, yeah, but okay. I could I could have gotten anyone to have this conversation with me. And yeah, I but got I don't you. even I didn't. Yeah, but I don't even know why you chose me. Yeah, but I chose you. It does it matter why I chose you? Beautiful. Okay, now, that conversation is a downward spiral. It's a pattern of awfulizing, looking in life at the weeds rather than the flowers, and that is a very common pattern. Like when research is done in a college female do normal dormitory and psychologists monitor to understand the conversation, it's mostly awfulizing. He's a jerk, she's a jerk, the teacher's a jerk, and mostly people are talking about awfulizing. Now, an improvisational pattern is yeah and. So let's redo the dialogue with a yeah and tilt. So you start, we're here. Okay, so we're here today to have this conversation about relationships. Yeah, and we can learn things about relationships. Yeah, and in the process we'll be able to teach other people about relationships. Yeah, and that can have a salutary effect in communities and states and even in the nation. Yeah, and that's what I'm hoping to do with this podcast. Fantastic. Okay, so now that is an upward spiral. And when we use a kind of yeah and dialogue, which is seemingly in contradiction to the way in which most communication happens, most communication is sad jan. Now I'm in the state of acronism. Of, uh, uh, so, so most communication is sad, Jan. Sullen silence, attack, deceit, judgment, advice, and negativity. And uh, uh, if we can create a communication nexus that's that upward spiral, yeah, 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 then we're doing value-added communication, and the whole tenor of the relationship changes. So it's a matter of building enough insulation by virtue of taking obvious pleasure in another person's happiness, by virtue of doing more yeah, and conversation, that you're building insulation. So when the inevitable regrettable incident happens in a relationship, there's enough insulation so that the relationship doesn't crash because of some of the difficult and unthinking things that people do when they're in relationship. And certainly, I am a carrier of that disease. As much as I know about human relationships, I still do stupid things in my primary relationship. And uh, then there needs to be repair as quickly as possible. But if there's insulation from having built emotional built an emotional bank account then it's easier to do that kind of repair yes and i'm wondering um if you have another acronym that that you know like the sad jan but for all of the the myriad ways that we could feed uh the positive spiral i don't have an acronym off the top of my head the metaphor 
the metaphor is that you're consistently making deposits in the other person's emotional bank account. Mm. I had a project that I wanted to do many, many years ago, and it was, I thought, a clever idea. I was going to do two books, both called Romancer Sizes, like romantic exercises, Romancer uh-huh. Sizes. <laughs> And I would have one book for men that women couldn't buy and one book for women that men couldn't buy. So I started interviewing people, you know, what's the most romantic thing that your partner has done, thinking that I would have these, you know, this like encyclopedia of little spectacular things that people do. Like one person said, well, my my partner went and bought a dozen roses and cut off the petals and put them in a bag and put them in the freezer and said, lie down in, in bed and then close your eyes and went out and got the rose petals and then poured the rose petals over the partner and said, uh, haven't you always wanted to make love in a bed of roses? And that's so romantic and it was beautiful. It was spectacular. But then I interviewed a lesbian couple and I said to one of the partners, you know, well, what's the most romantic thing your partner does? And she said, well, um, I wake up earlier, and then when I get out of bed, my partner rolls over to my side of the bed and says, I just want to sleep for a little while longer in your warmth. Hmm. And that's when I gave up the book. <laughs> because it was not the spectacular thing that was really the deposit in the emotional bank account. It was a little kindness a little thoughtfulness, keeping the other person in mind, making sure that you're doing little things that are that create interest. If you put in principle, that creates interest, and the principle doesn't have to be very big. It can just be little acts of kindness, thoughtfulness, that uh, build that insulation so that when there are major or even when there are minor or even major storms, there's enough insulation to help the couple move through that. You know, a Chinese aphorism is that a thousand good deeds can be ruined by one act of mistrust. So relationships are like glass. Glass is a very hard element on the scale of elements, but it's also brittle and uh, it can it can shatter. Well, I like the the odds that John Gottman talks about a little bit more, the 5 to 1 ratio versus the 1,000 to 1 ratio. It seems yes. a little bit more doable. So say that because I don't know that your listeners will necessarily remember. Yes. Um, so John Gottman, and this has come up a, a few times in the show, talks about the uh, relation the relationship between positive interactions that a couple has to negative interactions. So for every um, one negative interaction, you would want to have five negative uh, five, five positive, positive interactions. Um, so and this is I think it gets at what you're talking about that um, that w- the weight of a negative interaction it can it can be so massive, I guess that's density, not weight. But it can it can be so massive that um, you need a lot of positive energy, and that's probably has to do, I would guess, with the negative bias of our brains, and just you know you tune in so quickly to danger and threat, and it kicks yeah, in that whole you know your whole um, polyvagal stress response. 
Yeah, the brain is basically a mismatch detector. The brain is designed to notice what's wrong in any given situation. It's not designed so well to notice what's right, and that probably speaks to our caveman heritage. If you uh, ate a good berry, that was something good, and you could keep track of it, but if you ate a bad berry, you'd really need to keep track of that. So uh, our brains tend to notice and discriminate mismatches. Like if there's a stable field, you notice what's moving. And if there's tall people, you notice a short person. That's the way that your brain is designed. It's designed to mismatch. So um, when we can retrain ourselves into a yeah and value added five to one pattern. And the five to one doesn't have to be major things. It just could be reaching over and touching your partner or responding to your partner's bid you know, wasn't it nice that we went out to dinner? Oh, yeah, I really love that dinner. And uh, so you know, when your partner is bidding for attention, you're responding with a smile, a touch, uh, a memory. So they're, they're, they're relatively small things in that five to one ratio. They don't have to be uh, tremendous things. There's this other level of noticing that just occurred to me as well. I think a lot of the time we're trying to do things that make our partner happy. And what I'm realizing in what you've just been talking about is that simply the act of noticing that your partner is happy about something and bringing that, shining a spotlight on that, that in and of itself, I think, is having that kind of positive contribution. Absolutely. It seemed, you know, it's such a simple thing that you said, and to move from the world of what you know to the world of what you realize and the world of what you do, those are strange transitions because the information is there. Yeah, just, you know, spotlight, just, just so simple. And yet what we know is not necessarily what we realize and not necessarily what we do. Mm, yeah. So that might be a good next step for our conversation, which is, and and from your perspective, I'm, I'm especially curious on maybe some less conventional or un, uncommon ways that people can, can get over the things that hold them back from doing what they otherwise would want to do. You know, they're like, ah, you know, I missed that. I missed that opportunity yet again. You know, she was aglow with the, you know, because she had the delicious meal. And I could have just in that moment said, oh, you look so happy right now and really fed that. And I didn't. And damn. like So, so yeah, what are some ways that help people? step out of a, of a pattern of it's it's really I think a habit of being yeah we, we are slaves to our habits because they don't require very much energy and we don't have to use much of our brain once we have set up a habit now whether or not the habit is adaptive in any given situation uh, it's, it's, it's a heuristic. The, the habit is a heuristic. In most situations, it works, but in some situations, it's just the wrong strategy. And being intentional in relationship is not easy. Um, and so a degree of thoughtfulness, being intentional, understanding that spotlighting whatever ha whatever is happening that is constructive is a really good thing to do bringing 
that spotlight through a smile, a gesture, a hug, a comment is something that is constructive and it's making deposits in this emotional bank account. Um, and, um, but, but the problem is, is that it, it just, it's a ubiquitous situation that what people know and what people do is not necessarily the same. Now, if you treat your primary relationship with the same degree of honesty that you would afford your best friend, your, your, your relationship, if you, if you can just get conceptually, my partner is my best friend. So there's no, no, no illusions, no lies, no deceptions that you would do with your best friend and you treat your partner similarly. Now, if people could just, you know, people know that. I'm not saying anything that, that, that should be new to anybody, but it's taking that knowledge and transferring it into a conceptual realization. If I spend as much time with my partner as I do exercising, well, that's a hobby for me is that I exercise. So if I spend an hour a day exercising, I can spend an hour a day with my partner. And if people would do things like that, I, I would see less couples in my therapy practice. If people <laughs> would just walk together for 30 minutes, uh, then uh, probably they wouldn't show up for psychotherapy. Right. Uh, Buy the extra wide treadmill, everyone, the double, the double treadmill, or even, <laughs> and then you're good. I, I think you've just created a... a, a a, uh, an idea that will be instituted and somebody will make millions of dollars. Out of <laughs> you heard it here first, folks. Mm -hmm. um, I'm curious about your, because you do a lot of work with storytelling and mm -hmm. the way that we communicate, particularly the way we communicate evocatively with each other. And I'm thinking about like the cycle of storytelling in some ways being a lot like the cycle of, of good sex. And, and I'm also tying that in to what we were just talking about, about treating your partner with the same level of honesty and respect and um, that you would your best friend and trust that you would have in your best friend that they're, they're not out to get you. Um, so I'm, and so I'm curious about when people are in Let's say they maybe even are in best friend mode, but they are, they're feeling that um, the ennui, the boredom of like, oh, we just do the, you know, we just know each other so well. How do they use their communication in a way that's evocative to help keep things electric between them? Right. So evocative communication is the world of art. It's not the world of science. So we go to movies, we go to the theater, we go to recitals, dance recitals, because we want to alter our mood and perspective. We don't go to the movies, except for documentaries, which we don't go to so much. We don't go to movies for information. We go to have an experience. So there are two kinds of communication. One is a for informative communication and one is evocative communication. And when you want to move something to the land of no, from the land of knowing to the land of realizing, the bridge between those two worlds is evocative communication. So as you well know, Neil, one of my projects is to study the grammar of art, all arts. 
and to understand the communication patterns that are used by artists evocatively and to be able to bring that grammar into the world of psychotherapy. Now, I'm not saying that this is something that couples can use. It's more something that I use when I'm trying to help couples to realize what they already know. And within within a, a couple, if you're wanting to do things that are enhancing the um, depth of the relationship that has then become stale, one of the things that could be used evocatively is metaphor. And that wouldn't be very complex things that would be necessarily in the realm of a, of a of a, of a psychotherapist, but to say, you know, uh, um, one of the things that we can do is to add carbonation to the relationship. Let's add sparkle to the relationship. Let's make the relationship pop. And if you're using a constructive metaphor rather than saying to the other person, you're boring, <laughs> um, then you have more of an opportunity to help that person to realize what they already know. But changing a relationship from the inside is very difficult uh, because the system is recalcitrant to internal influence. So, Neil, if you talked with my 33-year-old daughter and you said to her some things that could be beneficial, you would have a better chance of reaching her than I would, even though I've known her for 33 years. Um, because you're outside the system. Mm. I think there was an article in a popular magazine where a, 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 an actress was being interviewed and she was saying, I refuse to be in an unsupervised relationship. <laughs> <laughs> so marital therapy has become something that's increasingly popular because when somebody provides a little pressure from the outside, it's easier to respond. I once had uh, a spasm in my neck, and uh, I'm a hypnotist, so I, I teach people relaxation. I, I couldn't relax. But when the physical therapist put a little pressure, the outside pressure allowed me to relax that area that has been in a spasm. So sometimes it's just a little bit better to get somebody who is helping from the outside to move the understanding into a conceptual realization. And that's when I use storytelling, and that's when I use jokes, and that's when I use hypnosis, and that's when I use all of the other evocative forms of communication that I learned by studying poets and movie directors and composers. Yeah, one of uh, my partner, Chloe, and, and my favorite books is this really thick book of jokes of uh, that Osho told during his talks. Uh -huh. um, so it's just a compilation of jokes. But not only does it help us break our patterns and get unstuck, but often because the jokes themselves confront material in our lives, it gives us a, like a new entree into talking about things that are important to us. I was talking with a patient who has, was into a stale position, and I was reminded of one of the stand-up routines that Woody Allen uh, had done before he was film director. And he's down south, and it's Halloween, and he puts on a sheet, 
and he goes out to go to a party and there's two guys in, in a car and they're both wearing sheets. So he gets in thinking they're going to a party. And suddenly he realizes he's in, with these Klansmen and he's going, you all and grits and grits and you all. And he's trying to pass. And they say, well, we're going to pick up the dragon. And he says, thinks, okay, there's somebody who's going to the party dressed as a dragon. And then they're out in a field and everybody's giving money. And he says, I pledge $50. Of course, that gives away that he's Jewish. So they put a rope around his neck and they're stringing him up. And suddenly he's back in Kansas in his childhood and he's frying up a mess of catfish. And he's going down to the store to buy a piece of gingham for Emmy Lou. And suddenly he realizes he's about to die and the wrong life is passing before his eyes. <laughs> now, if you want to get across a concept, are you living your life? Well, I could say that to somebody directly. Are you living your life or is your life living you? But if I can couch the message within a story, a joke, a hypnosis, a metaphor, there's much better chance that the person can move the idea into the world of a realization. Mm. Yeah, and I would... I would have this hope that there would be some way that couples can also learn that way of telling stories. Not so much that they're always, because I, I think it could, I guess, be a little um, heavy handed if you're always trying to come up with stories to get your partner to take the trash out, let's say. But, but it seems like it would be a good way to get your to get your feeling to to get understood. I guess maybe if you were telling stories less about what you wanted from your partner and more about your own experience um, and finding metaphors that related to your own experience that would help you get inside your partner's heart a little bit more. Yes, I, I agree, Neil. It's not, you know, if you, if you try to be tricky and manipulative and use all of these indirect techniques orienting towards your partner, I think that that will go south very quickly. But if you want to express the depth of what it is that you mean, the depth of what it is that you feel, the depth of your understanding, then using metaphor and stories is a much better way to express concepts than trying to make them linear and clear. Mm. So to share, you know, what, what do most people want in life? They want to be understood. And what do most people want for themselves? They want to understand themselves. So when you flip into using a metaphor to understand yourself in, in conjunction with being with your partner, and you allow that vulnerability to perfuse the environment, to perfume the environment, then that vulnerability builds the closeness and puts those deposits into your emotional bank account. Yeah, and going all the way back to what we were talking about at the very beginning, I think it's the, it's the raw art of our partner that we often fall in love with. It's you see them and they're you know, probably enhanced by all of those neurochemicals that you're getting, you know, the dopamine and et cetera. Um, you're seeing the, the raw art happening in front of you. And so as much as you're living into your own metaphor and trying to be understood in that way, I could see that, that you're stepping back into your art, into the things that attract you to your partner and vice versa to begin with. Yeah. 
and the things that attract you to yourself and by virtue of being open to your own art and exploring your own art with your partner that's a tremendously endearing the art of being you mm. that's a tremendously endearing thing yeah yeah and so many people in relationship that's one of the first things they say when they're in in crisis is i don't even know who i am like i don't even feel like i'm me right now mm -hmm. so this seems like a great way to to shine that spotlight back on you um mm -hmm. and and find yourself without having to necessarily throw the the baby out with the bathwater. yes wow we're just like a cascade of metaphors right now well then you know the uh, i think it was socrates or aristotle who said the thing most important by far is a command of metaphor we are metaphoric creatures. We learn to respond to metaphor, and this is part of our socio-biological or, or evolutionary design. You know, when you think about the way in which animals communicate, they communicate evocatively and metaphorically. They, they make a, a signal, and the animal and their species or other species respond to the signal. Our verbal communication is built on our... Uh, the way in which we, uh, the way in which uh, evolutionary design is to communicate conceptually. So when we want to reach deeper into the human brain, when we want to reach into the limbic system, let's use limbically designed communication, which is part of our evolutionary sociobiology. And that limbic communication is by using metaphors, gestures. Emotions are not communicated with words. Emotions are communicated with paraverbal um, factors and gestures and posture and proximity and um, tone and tempo. And it's all of those characteristics that communicate emotion. And it's not it's not the words, it's how the words are spoken. So when the idea is to share emotions and to communicate on an emotional way, then we have to use communication that's more conceptual. And uh, we may um, sacrifice some of the clarity of the communication because we can communicate in mathematics, things that are very clear, but in poetry, it's an ambiguous form of communication, but poetry is designed to reach the human heart, whereas mathematics is designed to reach the left hemisphere. Wow. Well, you just bridged us into the conversation we're going to have to have the next time you're on <laughs> the Relationship Alive podcast, but I, I really love how you brought it all together, and that is something powerful that hasn't really been spoken here on the podcast in such a clear way before around how emotion is communicated and how much more than how much how much more how much how much is more important than the words that you choose the way that you signal how you how you feel to your partner um, but if, if you think about emotion like I, I spent most of my 40 years career as a, as a psychologist, 10 years before doing counseling. But um, uh, what is an emotion? You know, where I didn't even have a definition of an emotion. And an emotion is a fleeting, visceral, adaptive, directional experience, move toward, move away, based on the history of the organism. It's a fleeting, visceral, adaptive experience that is directional, based on the history of the organism. So all animals have emotions. Now we have feelings because we can, we, we have a way in which we can categorize 
the nature of our visceral responses, and we can discriminate between anger and frustration or joy and enthusiasm. And so, but they're still uh, fleeting visceral experiences. And uh, most people really don't understand um, how useful emotions are. And we certainly people get locked into bad moods, but mostly people get locked into unadaptive states. And so part of my area of inquiry is helping people who are locked into unadaptive states to be more flexible and get into the state that is adaptive to accomplish whatever it is that they want to in the immediate environment. So Jeff, if people want to learn more about your work, what are some ways that they can do that? Well, uh, jeffreyzide.com is my professional site, and that would get people into seeing the kind of workshops that I do for professionals. But I have a lot of uh, video on YouTube uh, that uh, is some of my lectures for professionals. And um, there's a, a website that I've been developing called emotional-impact.com, which is a project that I uh, am trying to foster about how do you understand the grammar that makes art into evocative communication and how can good communicators, teachers, parents, therapists use some of the implicit grammar of art to improve their communication. So that that's a, a project that I'm working on. But most of my work is for professionals. I do have a, a book that will be coming out soon on positive addiction. So there's another website, positiveaddictions.com. And uh, when that book becomes ready, I will um, uh, um, have a way in which people can see that. There's another book that I have, which is Ten Commandments, for couples.com, 10 commandments for couples.com. But for the professionals, what I do is if you could find at evolutionofpsychotherapy.com, which is a conference that I've organized this December that can attract as many as 8,000 psychotherapists from 50 different countries, evolutionofpsychotherapy.com. And that's my most uh, important professional contribution. So, Neil, thank you so much for the opportunity to, to talk with you. We, we, anytime that I need a yeah and conversation, I'm calling you because you're so adept at it. Yes, and I am looking forward to getting that call from you. And, Jeff, thank you so much for joining us. As a reminder, if you want to download the detailed show notes, we will have links to everything that Jeff just mentioned. neilsatin.com slash zeig, Z-E-I-G. Or you can text the word passion to the number 33444 and follow the instructions. Jeff Zeig, thank you so much for joining us today. Super. Thank you. Thank you for listening to another episode of Relationship Alive. If you like what you've heard and want to make it easier for other people to find out about us, please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast and to rate and review us on iTunes. If you have questions or comments or want to continue the conversation, you can always join our Relationship Alive community Facebook group. And for more information about today's episode, visit us online at neilsatin.com slash podcast. Or you can always text the word passion, P-A-S-S-I-O-N, to the number 33444 for more information. Finally, do you have a burning question that you're hoping we can have answered here on Relationship Alive, either for a future or past guest? Let me know and I'll see what I can do. Take care 
and see you next time.